So Titus 1, reading verses 1 to 9, let us hear the word of our God. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The grass withers, the flowers fade, thanks be to God, his word endures forever. And may he bless it. Well, as I said, we're beginning uh, uh, another uh, introductory message. And part of the reason for that is that each chapter of this small letter to Titus contains within it a a special kind of uh, exposition of the gospel. And and it's contained in in between or uh, surrounded by instructions and teachings to the church and to the people of the church in how they are to conduct themselves but always wrapped in and around that is the gospel message. And, and here in chapter 1, we see it at the very beginning in verses 1 to 3. And the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But with all things concerning the two letters to Timothy and this letter to Titus, this is about the church. And it's about the doctrines of the church and life in the church. You know, one of the most difficult field of doctrine for Christians to receive and to exercise confidence in is that uh, field of ecclesiology. (laughs) And ecclesiology simply means the doctrine of the church. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is often translated in the New Testament as church. You, you hear people wrestling with it when they ask these questions or when they challenge you with these statements. Show me in the Bible where it says I need to be a member. We've heard that as, uh, often as, as elders. Show me in the Bible where only the church can administer the sacraments. Where does it say in the Bible that I need to go to church to be a Christian? You hear people asking these questions, not with an idea of wanting to learn, 
but more with that sentiment of challenging what they consider to be the status quo. You even hear it when it comes to the whole issue of worship and gathering together for worship. And it's become much more prominent today where people think, I can do that in my home. I can have a small assembly with with my family. And and that will suffice because we're the church. (laughs) And, And such small thinking often takes over. It's not like other doctrines, like soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. That's the Greek word for salvation. <laughs> you know, I, I rarely hear a Christian challenging the understanding, uh, the theology of justification. It, it's, it's very clearly set forth in, in a couple books and letters that Paul has written. And in Old Testament, it jumps out the need of forgiveness, the need of acceptance, the need of a righteousness that is not our own. You don't hear Christians uh, really challenging much in that, in that light. But when it comes to the church, there's a diminished view of it. Which is what makes this study and these letters so important. It is true, our Protestant evangelical understanding of the church is more difficult to deduce and to set a framework to than justification. Yet, we see here Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, addressing the church. He's not just writing to Timothy and to Titus. He's speaking about how the church is to be ordered. Titus was left in Crete for this very reason, to set things in order in the church. They were lacking, not just in their practice, but a godly wisdom of who they are as a community of believers gathered in Christ. They needed godly elders, faithful discipline, reverent mentoring, godliness, blamelessness before the world. How do you handle schismatic people? How do you be fruitful? And all of this revolving from and flowing out of the need of an established sound doctrine. It was just in God's providence that that pamphlet that I spoke of earlier came out just to show you the problems that exist in the wider universal church. What do we regard as as truth that we need to be living out and exercising in our life? And so, this is important. The church is there to establish that pattern of sound doctrine for us to walk in and to help us. It's not our enemy, like so many tend to portray it. I know that sounds harsh, but in reality, God says it. If you cannot love the body of Christ then how can you love Christ? So, it's important for us to understand that. And what we saw last week is understanding who we are as bondservants, like Paul, like 
Paul setting forth who he is and, and saying, now this, this affects how I live, how I walk, how I minister, and so it does for us. But another great important matter uh, is brought to us in these opening verses, and that is walking in assurance of God's grace. Do you walk in that assurance? Do you walk having the hope of eternal life? And if you're saying yes, stop for a minute and just start to think, where is that assurance of eternal life? That assurance of God's grace, where is it resting? Again, it's important because this is one of that uh, one of those three virtues is it not that Paul said this is what remains for us in our life 1 Corinthians 13:13 13, 13, faith hope and love and i know he says there that the greatest of these is love but when you get to uh, the letter to the Thessalonian church 1 Thessalonians Paul has made hope the greatest <laughs> And he emphasizes the three things there. But in, in that church, he says, hope is what you need to grab hold of. It needs to be that which comforts your life in this world. The Corinthian church, the problem was, was love. <laughs> and, and, and there is a sense in which love is paramount. Love is that first fruit, uh, virtue of the fruit of the Spirit that, that uh, it, it flows from us and is of God but hope as well it's up there and this whole matter of assurance is one that the visible church and I'm when I use that phrase the visible church I'm talking about that which is on the fringe of uh, apostasy some of which has apostatized and some which uh, have devolved into synagogues of Satan and some which are legalistic and some which are moderately evangelical and some you know you get over into another side are, are fully reformed and, and yet still have their issues that visible church and when you look at the understanding of where our assurance and hope of salvation and grace rest. There is a cesspool of teaching in that. And I say it that way because there's a lot of false teaching about it. A Roman Catholic uh, church said in the, Medi- uh, sorry, in the Reformation times, they said that the Protestant doctrine of assurance is written in... In their treaties. The Protestant doctrine of assurance was the greatest of all heresies. Can you imagine? What hope do you have if with all that you have done and all that you have believed, the best you can hope for is that you will end up in purgatory and it won't be too long. What a terrible assurance of salvation. And what that does concerning the work of Christ on the cross, it diminishes the glory, the power, the authority 
of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection because it's been placed into the hands of man. And why does the Roman Catholic Church say that? It's because they want that power to bestow assurance through participation in their rituals, uh, reliance upon the priestly administrations, approved good works that they will tell you what to do. And so it doesn't become an assurance resting in the finished work of Christ. How dare you? That, That seems a little extreme. Well, it doesn't get any better when you even come into evangelical circles. Arminians. Arminians who, who look and say, you know, that, that Christians can lose their salvation through sin and backsliding. It's something that's said in this letter. If you're not faithful to the very end, to death, then you uh, have no hope of eternal life. What does it mean to be faithful unto death? What does it mean to, to trust in the Lord when you can, through sin or backsliding, you lose your grasp of Christ and you're lost forever? What hope is there? And, and I've had that discussion as a pastor with, with people often. I always say, say to them, you've got the wrong picture that, that contradicts what Scripture presents to us. When it talks about us holding on to Christ, is that your hope? Is it resting in how good you are grasping the hand of Christ? No, the picture of Scripture is the opposite. It's the grasp of Christ upon you. Nothing can pluck you out of my hand. And, and, and you see how you, you get this theology that is looking at personal faithfulness as something upon which we rest our hope. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't called to persevere, saints. But even our doctrine of perseverance of the saints, is it looking at what we are doing? Or is it looking at God's persevering grace working in us that He who began this work in you is the one who will be faithful to the end to see that it is completed? Do you see how different those two sides are when it comes to being assured of God's grace. We have a whole chapter uh, in our Westminster Confession that deals with it. Chapter 18. And there's four paragraphs. I encourage you to read it. To understand. And one of the things that it does say there about the assurance of grace is though it flows from faith and can be encouraged by the evidence of good works, its foundation, its grounding, is not in us, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. True Christians can labor hard, striving for this assurance. And isn't it a good thing that we're not founding it upon our faith, and how good it is, or how bad it is, 
because our faith is like a roller coaster. There are times when we're like that centurion and we exercise so great a faith in the authority of Jesus Christ that we know He has power and glory. And then there's other times we're like the disciples in the boat and the waves of the sea are rolling over us and we thank God you don't care about us anymore. Isn't it good that our assurance isn't resting on us? but in Christ, in Him. And you see Paul setting that here before us. The other one, it's a little humorous, but uh, it came out in some of my readings. But I, I titled it the, the Paul Anka Christian. You know those ones? You know which song I'm thinking of? Feelings. <laughs> Feelings. You know, where you ask somebody, how, how, how do you know? You have eternal life. Well, they often reply like ignorance from Pilgrim's Progress when he was challenged. Remember ignorance? He was met on the road. And he's the one that just carried on until he even made it across the river and and came to the gates of the celestial city. And they called out and said, where is your certificate? He had none. But all along he said, look, I, I just feel like I'm... I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I just feel like I'm right with God. I just feel it in my heart that I'm going to heaven because I'm not an evil man and I feel good about myself. Those are his words. And he found out, as Pilgrim's Progress ends, that even from the gates of heaven, there's a doorway to hell. You see, assurance of grace is not resting in us, in what we do. Not, and we're not dismissing the need of faithfulness or good works when we say that. But it's not our resting place. Because we know in this life we fall short. It's resting in Christ. And that's what Paul brings us here to understand when he talks about the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but has in due time manifested His word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Here's where it rests. And it rests, first of all, in God who has promised. If you like alliteration points, you're going to get it this morning. God who has promised. Look what he says there in verse 2. The hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised. God has promised. You know, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, uh, I was reflecting on it again this past week. When you talk about hope, you... Some of you who know Pilgrim's Progress remember that after uh, Faithful uh, was martyred, uh, Christian went on and, carried, uh, and continued on in his journey with a, another companion whose name was Hope. But along their way, Christian and Hope decided to take what they thought was an easier path. And they, they went off of the difficult path they were walking on and it had uh, a rockiness to it and a, a huge slope and hill before them but over here was this nice meadowy path that just seemed so flat and straight 
And they thought, oh, that'll be better for us. And they got onto that path. And if you know Pilgrim's Progress, you, you'll recall that that path soon became uh, a terror to their, to, to their journey. And they ended up being captured by giant despair and held in chains in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And they were there a long time, such that it, it, it's, it's a portrayal of John Bunyan's own life experiences and a time when he, he despaired of life. How, how do you rise out of depression as a Christian? How do you rise up out of those times and periods in your life when you are despairing and just think, you know what, I am tired of life. Some of you maybe haven't been there because you haven't had to endure chronic pains, but talk to anyone who endures chronic pain. It's hard. Chronic suffering. And you get to that place like Pilgrim and you're sitting there and it, it's just Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle. And as you're reading it, and, and I think it's very appropriate, John Bunyan brings it out. What had Christian forgotten? He forgot that he had in his pocket a key whose name was Promise (laughs) that could open up every door in Doubting Castle. (laughs) And it's reflecting upon this very point. God has promised. He does not lie. Where is your hope resting? It's in God who has made promises that are sealed to us by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The unshakable promises of God are the foundation of our assurance because it is God who is holy. It is God who is faithful. It is God who is true and God who is unchanging who has promised you life in Christ. And that gift is irrevocable. We'll hear more of that tonight. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He cannot lie. Do you know Jeremiah the prophet... Boy, he had, I think, the hardest ministry. If you were to put ministry in terms of pastorate with the prophets, I think Jeremiah was even more difficult than Isaiah. He had to minister to rebellious Judah that was being conquered and devastated by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. And he had to tell the people, look, they're coming. Don't trust in the temple. Don't trust in these things. You, you have so forsaken God that He has forsaken those things that speak peace to you. Don't put your confidence in these earthly objects in that sense. Not because they still didn't reflect Christ, but because God was allowing a great time of judgment to come upon Israel. And, and they were taken off into captivity and the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem's walls were broken down. And it's in the midst of being in that time of judgment when you're a captive in a strange land. You know Psalm 137. How 
can we sing the songs of Zion? That he wrote lamentations. Now, you know the verses, 22 and 23. You probably don't know the verses on either side of it. (laughs) That's the problem with pulling out a verse. But you know it because you know the hymn. Number 32. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Do you know, Jeremiah, in the midst of Israel's greatest peak of sufferings, wrote these words, either side of it, verses 21 to 24. This I call to mind, therefore I have hope. It's through the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he says, right after that, the Lord is my portion. Thus says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. Do you see how important hope is? And how essential that it is founded upon who God is. Because even in the most dire of circumstances, we are able to look up as we heard already, setting our eyes upon our God who is in heaven and hoping in Him because we know that He is true and faithful. We're going to hear that when we get to 2 Timothy. Even when we are faithless, (laughs) He is Faithful because he cannot deny himself. Praise God! (laughs) You know, this is where we're resting. This is not a damnable heresy. This is a vital truth of our faith. Hope in the Lord. Because God has promised. You think about the promises that He has made. Just listen to this. Concerning your salvation. I'm just going to roll off a number of verses here. Concerning your salvation. Concerning the forgiveness of sin. Concerning that preserving grace that keeps you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 3.36 Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah! <laughs> Even besetting sin, repeating sin, all sin. 1 John 1, 7. I give, Jesus speaking here, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John ten twenty eight. God, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's just a smattering of six verses. <laughs> the scripture's full of it. 
God has promised. And I want you to know two things. That all of these promises, first of all, they belong to us now. We hope in the Lord. We have eternal life. We're not waiting for it. It is ours. That's why Jesus could say, He who dies has not died, (laughs) but lives forever. Do you believe this? These promises belong to us now. And and they're not, in in line with that, this is still the first point, they're, they're not based on our full grasp of them. They're based on the God who has said, I promise. Isn't that wonderful? Because when we're in Doubting Castle, what do we forget? We forget His promises. But the other thing, and this is, this is what is so precious to us when we think on Christ, every one of those promises are sealed to us by and in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, and you see it on the front of your bulletin, because Jesus bore away all of the curses of God that belong to us in His death, He is able to bring to us all of the blessings of God. And they are sealed to us by His resurrection. I hope your heart is singing hallelujah. (laughs) He wants you to know that. He was raised from the dead to seal to us all of the blessings of God's love. Hope in the Lord. And And it's in that sense we're not resting in our faith. I want to stress this again. We're resting in God who promises. That is so essential, my friends. I ask you, do you rest in God? Like if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ expressing this understanding of faith that as I have laid hold of Jesus Christ, He has laid hold of me. Come to Him. This is the hope that He wants you to to have, to rest in. Now the next two points are very quick. But we see from verse 2, not only has God promised, but God has planned. He made these promises when? From before time began. (laughs) Before time began. Before the earth was created. From eternity past, God made these promises. And I want you to stop and think about that. God promised the fullness of His grace to us before time began. Well, He certainly didn't promise them to us. We weren't even present. (laughs) Who did He promise them to? To whom were these promises made? And of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. From eternity past, God looked to His Son and in, in the spectrum of His divine decrees, and we're going to hear about some of this this evening, so do come back. 
um, there's a nice tie-in of these two messages. But from before time began, that covenant of grace was established in eternity with Jesus Christ. You think on that. You think on that. When it comes to, as he says, elect of God, according to the faith of God's elect. When did God choose you? I want you to hear this common refrain. When did God choose you for salvation unto Jesus Christ? And again, it's not based on your merit. It's not based on who you are. It's not based on how well you live as a human being. There's no merit of yourself that is able to influence God's choosing of you for salvation. When did he choose us? Ephesians 1.4 Chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the earth. Now this, this is high theology when you stop and think. This is speaking about glories which we cannot fathom. But God speaks them to us because he wants us to understand something. When was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Revelation 13.8 From before the foundation of the world. When did God prepare your inheritance? Remember those words in Matthew 25? Come you beloved of the Lord. Enter into the inheritance that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? How long has God loved you? You who are in Christ Jesus. How long have you been the apple of His eye? It's from eternity. His plan to save you is not some fickle plan that we make in our own humanity where we say, I have made plans to go to Florida with my family and visit Orlando and Disney World and it all comes to nothing because the disease comes in and changes all of our plans for at least a full year. It's not God's way of planning. From eternity this has been established and it's been established for eternity. You have hope. A living hope. And that changes everything. I know this is one of my favorite sayings, but that changes everything even when you think of John 3.16. God did not send His Son so that He could love us. He prepared His Son because He loves us. God so loved that He sent. It's, It's an important distinction that establishes hope. God has planned. And that plan was a plan of Him being your substitute in death and judgment. That plan of sending His Son was for Him to die in a cruel and cursed way to be forsaken so that He could say to you again, I will never leave you or forsake you. Marvelous grace. It's marvelous grace. We, we 
cannot earn this. We cannot even deserve an ounce of it. And yet God has abounded it toward us. His plan. And the last thing as we see here in verse 3, God has promised, God has planned, and God has proclaimed it to you. In due time, through His Word, through preaching, God speaks forth these things to you. My friends, this is where, backing it all the way up to the front of the message, this is where the church comes in. You know, I, I am always confounded when I hear Christians say, do I need the church to be a Christian? Or I hear them say something like this, what is this business of two worship services on the Lord's Day? And here we're given that answer. God wants to proclaim to your soul morning and evening on this first day of the week because He knows what is before you in this coming week. You don't. (laughs) And you need the Word of God preached to your soul. You need to hear God saying to you, I will keep you in this coming week. I will refresh your souls today because all that is before you would bring you into Doubting Castle again if you did not know I am your keeper. Now, I want you to think, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I I don't necessarily need the church for that, do I? How many sermons do you remember from one week to the next? And it's it's, it's not, I'm not implying something negative here. We hear so much. We are filled. It's like sitting down, I hope, every Lord's Day, and, and we're eating steak dinner every Sunday. And we're coming away full, full, full. And we look forward, there's another one coming. You know, sometimes we get tired of such luxurious meals. But when do we remember those meals? It's when we're sitting down in a time of trouble and we're wondering, where is God? And it's there that His Spirit will come and take that word that's been preached to you that you might have heard six weeks ago and forgotten until this moment and God comes and says remember my promise to you and there through that preaching ministry of his word your soul is revived you may not see the benefits of this sermon this morning I hope you do (laughs) God will see to it that its benefits are applied to you who are seeking Him. That's what He wants. He promised, He planned, He proclaims. He is God our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. And in preaching, that proclamation, that truth is ministered to your soul so that the hope of eternal life would be well established. Are you assured of His grace? You walk in confidence. God is my Savior. I urge you, come to the Lord Jesus. Be assured. Own this doctrine. It is hope in God. Let's pray.